Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of KISS Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. If you're enjoying these podcasts so far, please take a moment to subscribe and leave me a rating and review. This is really helpful and allows me to keep producing good content by drawing more of the top names in the industry to the show. Also sign up for our newsletters on our website, as it's the best way to find out right away when new episodes and blog posts come out. Our guest today is Nelson Lindsley of Poetry of Plants. You can check him out on Instagram under Poetry of Plants. Nelson has been cultivating cannabis for over a decade and working in the industry for over two decades. An artist by heart and an innovator by trade, he has worked with the majority of leading grow room technology and techniques that are available on the current market and studied their application for efficient large-scale cultivation. Over the last three years, he has consulted on sites in Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Pennsylvania, and California. Currently, he is building a research and development facility for the design of cultivar-specific study and working with several of the leading LED horticultural lighting companies on implementing technology in controlled environments before the products come to market. Nelson and I hit it off immediately, so I just started recording, and you can listen in on where the conversation took us. I've been listening to all your podcasts and getting caught up on where the content is, and I know that it's a lot of the times, it's more of an interview in a way, uh, less of a debate. Um, but I don't know, maybe we could talk about it off off the cuff, but I did want to discuss uh, some some of the topics around pesticides and a little bit about that. And if you don't want to go there, that's totally fine, too. No, we can't. I, and I don't mind debating. That's fine, too. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so I, don't, I love that. I don't have to be right, either. I, that's totally, I'm totally open to whatever. Neither, neither do I. Neither do I. I, I think, uh, I mean, we can get into uh, my feelings on the perception of pesticides. And, you know, I spent a little time as a, as a, you know, as a pest control guy, like doing inspections on homes and when I got that job, that was something to kind of cover the bills while things are in transition. And it was also fascinating to go study entomology and all these kinds of things. And I went into it um, very, very, very anti-pesticide and and looking at doing more studying around all of that. I, I realized that, you know, when you're monocropping, you have a lot of challenges and that's what we're doing right now. And there's new frontiers emerging with biological pesticides that are very exciting. And I would suggest that people do a lot their own research on all of that instead of necessarily uh, just jumping right into all of these things are bad, all of these things are evil, um, you know, and really looking into it with an open mind, not saying that they are good, not saying that they are bad, but really parse the zealous religiosity and the science. You know what I mean? Sure. Like there's there's quite a bit of bad information out there. And there's there's a lot of progress that we made. And what, what I see kind of happening culturally, and I see it a lot in cannabis, is that there's, there is a religiosity about how to cultivate. And I try not to have that when I grow or I cultivate or look at a project. So when I'm looking at a consulting project, I look at what what they're trying to achieve and what's the most efficient way to achieve that. And there's certain things that they can and cannot do based on the limitations that they have already set up by the building, by the structure, by power, 
and by the limitations of the staff. I mean, there's, I mean, when you've got a guy like David working with you, you can go neck deep in a soil biology. But if you've got a guy that's never done any of that work before, that's, you know, that, that, that's a lifetime of learning right there, just in the soil, just on the microbes. And, uh, I think people should explore all of it, but sometimes it doesn't necessarily work, um, to get people off the ground. And I'd like to talk to you about that a little bit because I would love for you to challenge me on that. And that's what I talk about with David frequently is challenge me on my methodology because I am open to make it better. I want, I don't have a set methodology. Like we're in, uh, we're looking cultiv you know, plant biology, understanding plants. I, I really feel like we know like a percentage of a percent of what's really going on. You know, there's like a whole economy going on in the soil that they're just starting to understand. And their photosynthesis, right? I went to a photobiology seminar and listened to some of these leading guys from colleges and talk about photosynthesis and how little they actually understand of it. You know, that to me is like, whoa, okay, wait a minute. We kind of have some names and some terms to label all this stuff that's going on, all these processes, but really it's very close to magic in a lot of ways. And we're just slowly kind of uncovering what's going on chemically with the plant, what's going on with fluorescence, what's going on with heat, what's going on with all of these things, what's going on with phytochrome response. I mean, we can get technical on that if you want to, uh, but that's the stuff that's really exciting. And then how does that work with a fungal network, with a, a network of bacteria? And if, if we remove that fungal and bacteria network, what happens to the plant? Do we get a better plant? Do we get a worse plant? Is there, is it like taking away part of its language? Cause that fungal network is part of its language. Can we create that fungal network in hydroponic systems? You know, it, it so people will go, Oh no, we can't do that. Well, I don't know. Hmm. We don't know. We don't know yet. Like we have theories, but has anybody really tried to ex execute on it? You know, I mean, there's certain, uh, paradigms that people get stuck in cause they find something that works. And they, they stay there. But that doesn't mean that what they found is necessarily the most efficient and going to take us to the next level on interacting with the planet in a sustainable and ecological way. And I like to challenge all of those belief systems and really put them to test. And I'd like to do it in my own spaces that, you know, I can I have that rain to get creative. Like if I like when you called me the other day, I was playing around with something that I had learned about from a tomato, a tomato, large scale tomato guy, and it didn't work on cannabis. And I blew a whole run, you know, and <laughs> everything got, everything got cooked. And I have, you, you deal with disappointment when you see things like that. Cause when you're a gardener and a farmer, you get super connected to the plant because the plant is alive, you know, and, and that's, you, there's enough study coming out right there that the plant actually has, uh, you know, a, a, a type of feeling, a type of a sensory system that we don't fully understand yet. And so you develop a relationship with a plant and it's not in a language that, uh, that what we share with between human and human, it's, it's a different kind of language. And it goes back, you know, centuries in human history in our relationship with plants. But I, I, I believe that there's a consciousness to it. You know, I believe that there's something bigger there that we don't fully understand yet. And, and it might not be something that we are capable of holding in our minds. That's the other thing. Like our minds are limited, you know, but the universe is not. And our relationship with the universe does not have to be limited by our understanding. Uh, we can be 
almost like a Buddhist about it and be moving in the rhythm and the flow and, 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 and connect with it in a way where then our thoughts become after as part of a reflection tool. Instead of trying to think our way through it, sometimes it's just about uh, quieting your mind and being in the garden and allowing some of those things to kind of come through you like a vessel. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of creativity and inspiration comes from because I believe creativity is finding uh, the similarity between dissimilar things. You know, and when you're looking at growing plants indoors, that's a very different environment than what plants are naturally grown in. And if you're looking at what's going on with the planet right now, whether it's man-made climate change or whether it's just part of a cycle, uh, we may have to learn how to really grow plants inside and create environments to be able to still survive on this planet. I mean, that is something that I'm seeing more frequently is so many uh, large-scale grows for food production are moving to really high enclosed greenhouse systems or in indoor environments. I had a friend of mine who sent me a picture of uh, a reflection of a building in, uh, from the Freedom Tower. It was, it was a building that was across from the Freedom Tower in New York City. And he sent me this beautiful reflection of the clouds and this and that, and you could see this reflection of this building. He goes, you know what that building is in that reflection? He's like, that's one of the largest indoor cultivation spaces for produce and specialty herbs that I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's all indoors in this building in downtown Manhattan. <laughs> and that, that just blew my mind, you know? And I think that where a lot of this technology and research is going to end at is where, how, how are we going to grow food on another planet? How are we going to grow food in space? How, uh, you know, and you can have your own belief, like we shouldn't probably leave this planet and go corrupt other planets, but hopefully in this process, we're going to learn how to, how to work more with all of these things and not necessarily against them and look at everything as being disposable. I think that would be the lesson from this planet. So those kinds of things excite me. So I think when I look at the indoor environment and I look at the outdoor environment, look at the greenhouse environment, I think right now in the cannabis space, there's a ton of money going in and there's an opportunity to really work on developing technology where we didn't have the funds to develop it. Uh, to grow cannabis really efficiently, but also to grow food really efficiently. That's something I'm really passionate about. Wow, you brought up a lot of different things there. The one that really stuck with me, and I mean, that that everything you brought up there could be its own topic <laughs> in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. uh, the thing that you stuck with me was the methodology thing that you brought up and how we get so caught up with the one way of doing things. And to be fair, like I know that I push the organic paradigm. Like to me, that's I was brought up with it by my father. I've seen some of the damages that have been created by um, mineral salts to our environment, to our own health. And so for me, that's the paradigm I'm stuck in to a certain extent. And I'm hoping talking to you today, I can branch out and learn some new things uh, and, and be more open-minded towards that. But in addition, I find that this the cannabis industry especially is really caught up in that. We have indoor growers versus outdoor growers. We have peat versus cocoa. We have organic versus chemical nutrients. We have even within the organic world, we have probiotic farmers versus biodynamic farmers versus Korean natural farming. And, and all of these guys are very, they're zealots, like you said, in terms of what they believe and why their method is the best. And I guess I'm not here to say my method is the best. I think that this style of growing that, you know, David David Perone and Tim Wilson and these guys are doing is a little more sustainable from an environmental perspective. 
But I think in terms of improving on efficiency and yield, there's still a lot of room to grow. You mentioned that soil science doesn't know that much about actual the interaction interaction with plants. Well, I went to a talk oh probably about five years ago with from a professor at Oregon State University, and he was saying that we know more about what's going on in space and in the ocean than we do with what's going on directly under our feet. Oh, I believe that. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, well, that that I would attribute that more to, you know, the hu- humans putting their dreams above reality in a lot of ways because we're looking up at the stars, right? Looking at, at these unlimited possibilities, but meanwhile, we've missed some of these obvious things that require our, our attention right now to survive. You know, it's like, and we have to bring. And on top of it, this is the crazy thing: all those things that are going up in the sky, those are all patterns in geometry that have a lot of parallel with what's going on below us. You know what I mean? Like there's like everything is I I don't I'm not trying to get too esoteric, but there's like it's almost like if we look at the dirt, well, if we understand the soil, we'll understand the cosmos. You know what I mean? Like if you look at a microscope, God, man, the first time you look at a microscope and looked at the, the bacteria going on in the soil, it, it, I, I could have sworn I was watching some crazy psychedelic cartoon <laughs> and that these were these were creatures in another world, had no idea we were there, right, in another dimensional space. And they're going about their business. They're, they're trading little bits of this, little bits of that. One little thing that looks like a tiny little bear is bringing something over that, that looks, you know, like some nematode. And they're, they're, they're communicating, man. You know, like there's – it's not just arbitrary, you know, and, and that's like – on this, the micro is a reflection of the macro in a lot of ways. But the, what's most important right now is that, is understanding what's right underneath our feet. And uh, it, it can be really frustrating when you think about how much time and energy has gone into things that are awesome. You know, they're cool to think about, but they're not, they're not necessarily really part of our survival right now. And they're not really part of being a responsible race on this planet you know i mean there's like some things in real all these religious texts talk about in a lot of ways talking about taking care of the planet taking care of the garden and that's not what that's not what's really going on so with the mineral salt conversation that we can dive more into i i would suggest that a lot of that has to do with the the abusive methodologies you know uh using that without being responsible using some of these chemicals without being responsible and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, you look at a place like Salinas, right? Uh, Fiji Lane, there's a ton of cannabis growth going on. I mean, I've been in some of these greenhouses and looked at half a million square feet of cannabis canopy. Like, they don't care about licensing and none of this kind of stuff. But you know what they have a problem? Their main problem is right now? The water coming out of the ground is at 2,000 parts per million. Wow. And you know what? Do you know why that is? Runoff from all these grows and egg. Not from the cannabis grows. So, well, Salinas used to be one of the biggest uh, growers of cut flowers. So all of those greenhouses are all dilapidated and run down. They all went out of business after NAFTA passed because it was cheaper to get flowers from Ecuador and South America than it was to grow here. But for years, they were just run exactly, ag, running off all those minerals right into the ground. And now what's coming back up? Unusable water. Unusable water. You know, and they have to, you know, these guys are installing really crazy, expensive reverse osmosis systems 
But then what are they doing with, so uh, the high-end reverse osmosis system is you get like a four to one clean to dirty water. Well, that if you're filtering out 2,000 parts per million, what's the EC, what's the parts per million of that water going back into the ground? <laughs> you, know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's going to be super, super high. Well, what are they doing to mitigate that? All right. So there's a lot of nitrates and I imagine there's a lot of phosphates and what they're filtering out. Well, guess what? There's some technology to handle that. Maybe not necessarily with the phosphates yet, still experimental, but there are certain bacteria that will chew up those nitrates, turn that back into something that we can use. You know, you look at, uh, there's certain products out there, I'm not gonna even name certain products out there, that they're selling exactly that refuse from that bacteria as some, you know, miracle plant food. But you can install, you know, I guess they're called like a biogenerator or something like that. Uh, you might know the name of it, but you can take that runoff and you can literally clean it with with bacteria, you know, and people don't know that they don't understand that this technology is there. So what we're doing for the spaces that I'm working at in Santa Rosa is we're trying to take all that waste and turn it back into profit, turn it back into a resource, because that's what's going to drive this change on uh and an environmental level. It's not going to be the religiosity. It's not going to be the tribalism. It's not going to be philosophy because people at the end of the day, there's a, a bunch of great people out there that really care about that. But what makes the world turn is all this money and how we are going to make a change is we're going to make a change through the market. So we have to look at everything that's wasteful and we have to turn that into something that's profitable. And that's how we change the world. We have to do it through trade. We have to do it through the market. We have to figure out creative ways of taking that refuse, you know, turning it into gold. And that technology is out there, and there are people that have worked on it. It just hasn't been scaled yet because uh, there hasn't been an impetus for change, right? Now we're on impetus for change, and we have a huge impetus for change in the cannabis business because we're more regulated than anybody else. Anybody else? I mean, and California is the California is a pro at regulation. They might not be so great at keeping the streets together, but they, when it comes to regulation, oh man, <laughs> they're ball busters. And I, I got to tell you, uh, consulting and design, doing these designs for these buildings, and thinking about all these different regulations and codes that go into it, uh, it's the greatest challenge I've ever had in my entire life. Other states that I've worked in have been challenging, but California has definitely been the most challenging. But what does that do? That forces the people that are financing these buildings, yeah, to put in a couple extra million into this building. But what you're gonna put that extra million into are things that over the long term are gonna pay off. You know, whether that's LED lighting, whether that's uh, water recapture, reclamation, uh, processing all of your waste and turning it back into food. Uh, all of these things. So there's a huge opportunity to be an example to other industries in California right now through the regulation as long as you have uh, the people with the money willing to see it as something that's going to be best for them in the long term. And to some extent, California is just forcing everybody to do it. And in one way, it's really frustrating. And in another way, it's, it's really awesome. You know, and it, that should be highlighted. Uh, and that that's something that could be really, really positive that could come out of this. If it's ex executed properly and people uh, don't try and cut corners and do all the shifty stuff that they've been doing in the black and gray markets for the last 20 or 30 years. You know, I totally agree with you. I think 
I, I struggle with regulation because on one hand, I feel sometimes it can feel it can be very heavy handed. And on the other hand, I see so many people taking advantage of a lack of regulation or a lack of enforcement, especially in the cannabis market with products, you know, containing paclobutrazole, uh, oh, yeah. you know, pesticides that were unlabeled or, or only only should be used on ornamental plants. Uh, you know, we need consumer protection. Yeah. And it has to come from the government because frankly, no one else has the power to enforce this sort of thing. So on that, on that end, I, I feel a strong need for some level of regulation and enforcement. On the other end, I totally hear, and some of these regulations are, can be really ridiculous and oh, absolutely. Uh, punitive. And so it's, it is a challenge. It's, it's sort of a necessary evil right now as we, as we evolve. Uh, I know for me, trying to get my products certified organic with the CDFA has been a massive challenge and it takes forever and it's, you know, months and months. But once I have that, it, it carries a certain weight to it to know that a consumer can trust it. Yeah. And, and, and to, to the point, the, the regulations are heavy handed in a lot of ways and, and are arduous. And, and I'll tell you why that is. That's because they have no idea what they're doing. You know, they're looking at this and they're, they, they don't know whether to label uh, cannabis ag. What, what kind of industry label is it, right? It's not, it's not, a, is the ag, I don't know this yet and I could be wrong, but I don't know if the Agricultural Pest Control Board is going to be overseeing uh, the chemicals used if the same standards are going to be applied there. I mean, maybe they don't want to do that because it's so regulated. I might get in trouble for saying this, but cannabis is going to be so regulated and so looked at that maybe their own practices in the agricultural world will then be scrutinized just as much as cannabis. I mean, that would be a benefit that could come out of it, is some things that need to be more regulated, right, and need to be looked at more, and they need to do real testing on, on these pesticides and then their effect, long-term effect on human beings and their short-term effect, and, and to identify, you know, is this the next DDT or is it not the next DDT, right? We, like we know DDT was a, was a bad pesticide and the pesticide industry has done a lot of, uh, these people are going to hate me for saying this, but they've done a lot of really good things and allowing us to have a constant source of food supply. We've got real comfortable and lazy with being able to not have to grow our food anymore, but that's not what, the way it was for thousands and thousands of years. You know, and so we just spray the chemicals on it and the plants grow and then we, we get, you know, some food and, and maybe not the greatest food. Uh, and it's, it, people get comfortable with it. So there's no reason for it to change. Well, there might be a reason for it to change. There might be a better way of doing it. There might need to be more innovation done in the agricultural space. And maybe that will come from cannabis because, you know, the big agricultural players are getting into this space, you know, and and so some of the regulation is a little <sighs> drives me a little crazy because I look at it and I go, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. And and what that what does that tell me? That tells me the people that are writing the regulations, they need more help, you know, uh, and if and, and you know, I've worked in customer service before and if someone's just yelling at me and upset at me I don't want to help that person out but if someone comes to me and says I've got a problem and I really could use your help and they connect with me from a human to human level and we talk about what the problem is and why it doesn't make sense and we have a rational conversation without the emotionality without the religiosity I'll tell you what I think we can get some stuff done you know I think we can move past some of the tribalism and really work on all of this. And, you know, there's some gatekeepers in the way, uh, but you've got good groups uh, like the SCGA who have been working on writing these regulations and it's taking forever. I mean, the CDFA, the new set of CDFA regulations aren't 
I think they're slated to come out in October and we're going to have an opportunity to make some changes there, you know, uh, especially the whole aisle thing. I don't know if you've even looked at that, but that's a whole crazy thing I won't get into. Like, how do you count canopy? Like how they count canopy and all these other kinds of things and how people have taken advantage of some of these canopy definitions and, and, and why they're looking at, uh, I don't know, are you aware of this whole canopy thing where there's, you've got to have 10 feet of space between the plants, otherwise it counts as your canopy. You know, you have different regulations down in California than we do uh, up here in Washington and Oregon. So, oh, yeah, it's here um, in Washington. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, and I want to say that because I know all of our listeners are not just in California. If I get enough interest, maybe we can have you back on to talk more about regulation. I agree with everything you're saying, and I think you and I should talk off air for a while because uh, I think we can't get into more of the esoteric stuff like you were saying. But uh, yeah, let's let's dive into some of the stuff that can be uh, real practical for growers that are listening to this show. Absolutely, let's do it. That's where I think you really shine. So I see, uh, I see using this hybrid method, but I hear a passion from you towards you know sustainability. Uh, you sound like a hardcore organic grower the way you talk about the planet and the way you talk about these plants. So yeah, when we say hybrid method, uh, as I understand it, you're using a combination of organics and mineral salts or chemical nutrients, That's and yes. Uh, before we get into that, I want to tell you a quick story. So I found out about this website, uh, bigpumpkins.com. They have a forum and it's all the giant pumpkin growers community. And they were using our compost teas back when we were just a compost tea company. I had a few of them contact me. Uh, they call them heavy hitters if you've gotten over a thousand pound pumpkin. And what's interesting about this is you think cannabis guys are crazy and passionate about their plants. Here with the giant pumpkin community, you have guys that are growing from seed to literally thousands of pounds in the period of less than a year. And their their plant's not worth anything. Like we're growing a high value crop. People use it recreationally. People use it medically. It has all these medicinal benefits. Here you're literally just growing a giant gourd for no other reason than you want to have a big giant gourd. And it's pretty awesome. Uh, I dedicated a small part of my food garden now to, to growing one just out of curiosity and enjoyment for the, for the act of just watching something grow so quickly. But when it comes to this hybrid method, so they were growing with chemical nutrients strictly for a long time, um, up until about 1996 when they got their first 1,000-pound pumpkin. Uh, genetics were improving, so I don't want to take away from that. Uh, the genetics have been constantly improving, but they started mixing in things like mycorrhizal fungus. That became a big thing in the pumpkin industry right about that time. And then uh, they started incorporating more and more organics. So now most giant pumpkin growers and all the world records, when we talk about just straight yield, are using a combination of biologicals, which would be the organic side, and then these you know ionic nutrients. And the current world record set in 2016 is 2,624 pounds. So wow. that's you know 1600, over 1,600 pounds of growth in a decade. And I want to attribute a lot of that to genetics because they do a really good job with that um, in that community. But I think we have to give some credit, too, to this sort of hybrid method. And I've seen it with cannabis, too. You know, Some of the biggest yields and best plants I've seen have used a combination of both. But uh, I want to hear kind of your thoughts and what you're exactly you're doing. Okay, so what I'm what I'm currently using is a very low EC mineral salt blend that I've put together in combination with FPF, uh, lots of kelp, 
some molasses, some other sweeteners, natural sweeteners, uh, like some cane sugar from here and there. And then um, let's see, using aloe powder, using willow bark, and uh, using some some microbiological teas, some fungal teas that I'll brew in conjunction. And I don't have a set schedule for the teas. I really do it by feel. So I look at the plants and I look at what's going on and I make a decision based on what's happening with the plants and the growth, which really is based on how, how high I've got the light intensity, how high I'm trying to push photosynthetic rates and how fast the plant is transpiring. When, if I'm going to segue a little bit into the PPFD and that importance of using, uh, really dialing down your fertilizer, because when you're running a higher PPFD, the plant will transpire more, which means the plant's going to require more water and less concentration of fertilizer. So I, you know, that methodology almost led me into using a lower mineral salt dose. And when I was growing strictly in a, a quote unquote living soil blend where everything was in the amendments, I was having trouble with the higher transpiration rates, uh, balancing out uh, the fertilizer uptake that was naturally happening in the soil. And I would say that I am would want to get back to that, uh, to dial that in and figure out where I went wrong. But I really haven't seen anybody yet, and, and I'm open to someone showing me, but I'm, I haven't seen anybody yet grow under high PPFD indoors uh, in a living soil without, uh, without having a few imbalances come up. And that led me into creating a, a, a mineral salt blend to address those imbalances that were coming up from the high transpiration rates. So you, you tried living soils and then switched back to chemical nutrients or where, where, where did this path start and what sort of media are you currently growing in? So when I first started cultivating, I was learning everything from the hydro store. Oh boy. So there was a lot of bottled nutrients, uh, and this was over a decade ago, and there was rock wool and cocoa. And I had a room that I decided I was going to go organic in, and I used uh, just a peat moss base and gave it all organic inputs. And that was the best quality, best yielding room out of any of the hydro setups. So I had shifted completely from that point to organic, but I was getting reduced yields and I started working with other guys and they were getting reduced yields as well. And this was under a single ended high pressure sodium bulb. So really at best you're getting 400, 500 micromoles, not a lot of light, uh, but the quality was really good. And I was trying to figure out a way of negotiating the quality and the yield. I wanted to get both. Now I know there's that in the last 10 years, organic cultivation has come a long way and there are a lot of guys that are getting fantastic yields. Uh, from just using straight organic mediums. For me, I was looking to kind of dial it in a little bit more uh, when I moved to the LED lighting, because uh, the LED lighting had a whole other set of challenges and it was, was kind of like growing, uh, learning how to grow all for the first time. And I had gotten recommendations from a lot of gentlemen up in, uh, from a few gentlemen up in Oregon, uh, one being Jeremy Plum, great guy. And he uh, was talking about the living soil, the terpene production, and then that coupled with the LED lighting. So I went back into a living soil uh, methodology and I was doing that as a consultant for one of the grows and it didn't go as we expected. So I had to make adjustments. And when I went and tested some of the different batches of amendments I was using, I was finding that there were 
certain minerals like heavy metals and things like that that were showing up and there was not a lot of consistency between batches of amendments. So that was really concerning to me. And I went, you know, when I was having all these problems, I called, you know, some PhD friends of mine in the plant world and they were talking to me and, and we were having creative conversations back and forth trying to diagnose what was going on. And they're like, you need to do leaf tissue sample tests and soil testing. And that, and I had never done that before. And this is a little over two years ago. So there's a laboratory in El Segundo called Wallace Labs, and they will do cannabis leaf tissue testing. And uh, I brought down samples with them to them and soil samples and, and got these analysis back. And I was like, whoa, I'm way off the Richter with certain things and way under with other things. And there's all this copper and aluminum. Where did all this come from? And so I went back to uh, a base, a base peat moss media, because that always seemed to work well, and started to introduce mineral salts again with a lighter amendment, with lighter amendments in the soil, because the soil tests are coming back that my fertility was through the roof. And I might have gone overboard with it. I was working with, you know, some, some blends that people had recommended, and it just didn't work. So I had to almost relearn that whole process with growing under LEDs. This brings up a few different questions for me, but let's start with the recipes that you used for when you were doing living soils and things like that. Uh, were they really, really high in rock dust? Is, do you think that's where you were picking up a lot of your heavy metal content? The heavy metal content wasn't coming in on the rock dust analysis. It was coming in on, uh, I was using a, a, a composted cow manure and that's where it was coming in from. Uh, you know, yeah, and it was, and in the, in the, in the batches were different. Uh, like uh, it was a different, it wasn't a consistent mineral blend. Like, uh, or, or was it, there wasn't a consistent mineral content in each tote. So I get a tote of it and then we would test that and then we would test the other one and they would be radically different. Hmm. And, 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 you know, that, that didn't work. Uh, that wasn't going to work. And when, you know, in California, there's a lot on the line for a lot of these guys that are getting off the ground and, there's not a lot of room for experimentation for a lot of people, unless you're working on a boutique small scale level and you have the space to do that R and D, which I recommend everyone do. I recommend that everyone's getting in this space, have an R and D room to, to test out and try different methodologies. But that was, you know, that was the big issue. And then there were certain, uh, Bokashi's and some other, uh, other amendment. I'm not going to name all of the amendments cause some of them could be correlated to a brand and I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but mm -hmm. the, there was just things that were coming in where it was, you know, I, I stopped trusting the amendment companies. You know, I stopped trusting them. And there's a, there's an amendment company that I use now for my blend and they do all the soil testing and all the analysis, very similar to what you guys are doing. And I get results back on every batch and I can trust that what I'm putting in uh, to the media is going to work well. And that media is peat moss. That's my favorite media. Now I am uh, running trials with rock wool because I'm specking out and designing uh, these vertical rack grows, uh, and when you're putting uh, like peat moss or cocoa up 10 feet in the air, uh, that's a nightmare for one. Uh, it's not very practical, and also it's a safety hazard. And until we have like robots in the grow room uh, that can be lifting and moving these things for us, which will happen soon at some point, I think in the next five years we'll start seeing that. You know, something like rock wool or some other types of uh, almost like styrofoam media is an easier way for the operations to go down. So, you know, that's, that's why if you see rock wool on my Instagram and all that kind of stuff, I mean, my favorite is peat moss, put the organics in it, give it a light mineral salt, 
with a ton of kelp. You know, I, I'm a total, I totally agree with you on the whole potassium, the, <laughs> yes. the, the, the potassium <laughs> hunger. I mean, it's, you know, and, and so we've got, and also like on a side note with the kelp, the kelp's got uh, all kinds of good other things, other good hormones and, and, and um, you know, and you can you can combine that with salicylic acid and, and other botanical extracts. You can combine that to create a similar effect that people are getting from Paclo. All right. And I just want you to know that you can get that. I mean, if you are using Paclo or have been using Paclo, hopefully they stopped that stuff is terrible uh, and it really causes major problems with us and there's enough data out there to show that but you can you can create all of these uh, effects that people use synthetics on I believe that you we can we can find that in nature and apply that to get the plant to uh, express itself in a similar way so tighten up the nodal spacing I think you can do that with high doses of kelp and with some other botanicals I mean I've seen that effect and also plant training you know you can uh, redistribute the auxins to auxiliary branches by, you know, a combination of low stress and high stress plant training techniques. And that is really where the secret is in getting high yields is training, training those plants, you know, which takes a little bit more time, but it's almost like sculpting in a way. And I, I think it's, I think it's fun. I, I really enjoy doing that. I really enjoy watching the plant kind of grow into a shape to fill up the canopy where, uh, you have a lot of tops very close together. You know, that's where you get those higher yields. You bring up plant stress and a question I have in that regard would be, uh, I've seen, I've seen a lot of information. It's obvious that plant stress has an effect on the, uh, the flower or the fruit or the bud of a plant. Uh, and, and a lot of times it's in a positive way when it, when that stress occurs at the right time in a plant's life cycle. Yeah. So uh, one story I really liked is, uh, in Italy, they would actually flood their tomato valleys with, uh, salt water as a way of raising salinity, stressing the plant, and then it creates a much, you know, much he a healthier, better tasting tomato on the final crop. I haven't yet seen enough research to really show when that stress should occur in a cannabis plant. I don't know if you have more information on that. You'll hear, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the story, well, oh man, I neglected my plant or something happened, it got mites, whatever, but the bud that came out of it was the best I've ever had. You know, that plant was so stressed, it you know, looked like it was going to die, whatever, you know. So do you, do you have any more experience or anything you want to share on that in that regard? Yeah, I, you know, so I, I think I think most people kind of understand that the chemical, the psychoactive chemical compounds produced in cannabis are a defense mechanism to some extent. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that something that's, you know, poisonous for everything else in the world is medicine to us. I think that's just brilliant, you know, like, you know, Mother Nature's. You know, she's a savage, savage beast doing things like that. So it's uh, so as far as timing on plant training, uh, I think it really depends on the cultivar. All right. You know, that's like it's a kind of a loaded question because every cultivar is going to have its own morphology and there's going to be certain and you have to really study and learn your cultivar. So I will I I've stressed the plant out, not at not in one run, but I've definitely tried different stress techniques at every point in the plant's growth to see what happens. And I, as far as what, what I found that works the best is to start shaping the plant fairly early on when it's maybe had 10 to 14 days of vegetative time and it has enough strength to kind of handle a little bit of stress. And I'll usually like to start with a low stress technique if you can afford the time to do it, which would be tying down some branches. Uh, there's a great guy on 
I'm going to plug another guy. I don't know him personally, but I, f- I follow his feed on Instagram called Light Addict 420. And this guy is like the stress king. He made a Death Star, literally a cannabis plant in the shape of a Death Star, put a light in the center of it. All right. I think it took him like two years to, to train this plant out and flower it. And I, he does this other technique called fluxing, which he starts the, you know, I think he's starting auto flowering or very early on seeds and he like splits the plant and then bends all of the branches down and then ties them down flat on the top of the pot. But, and it, the, the plant looks haggard, like, oh my God, how is it still alive when he's done with this? But the final product that comes out is just mind blowing when you look at it. And for him, it's like an art project. And if you look at some of uh, like bonsai techniques and apply a little bit of this and a little bit of that to it, I, I think you'll you'll find some interesting you'll have some interesting results. Now, it doesn't work on every strain. Some strains just they they stop or they slow down or they have problems or it was too aggressive. Uh, and when you're stressing a plant, you can also introduce you know bad things into the plant because you're breaking the epidermis. So be very careful when you're doing things like that. And it's definitely a safer bet to use low stress techniques. Uh, but I'll typically um, I'll typically train the plant, try and get it to have a structure that's going to work well. And when I look at a small plant, when I look at a small immature vegetative plant, I try and imagine what it's going to grow into. And I look at its current structure, and I look at where the geometry of that current structure could use a little help. And I will ease it into that little help at first, and then as it's about to go into flower, I'll be more aggressive with it to get more of a shape that's going to work within the trellising system and within the canopy and within the plant count. And then from weeks one, two, and three, I'll continue to weave that plant in inside and out of the trellis while it's undergoing the stretch process, because in that stretch process, you the, the stems are, are still malleable, but once they harden off, you really don't want to do any more training. I think it's the point where you're like, okay, I'm done with this, you know, where the plant, uh, where the stems lose their softness and you can increase that softness by spraying a little water or running a higher humidity. Now I run a much higher humidity in the first three weeks of flower than most people do. Most people think I'm bat crazy for doing that. But if you look at, you know, do a little study on, on the vapor pressure differential, and, you know, I, I, I'm more of a believer of running higher humidity in the beginning. And then when you're in, in, in a colder temperature, that's another thing, too. I like to run a colder temperature. I don't like the leaf surface temperature to be above 75 degrees. And for all the people listening out there, if you're just looking at a thermostat in your room and you're not measuring your leaf surface temperature, you're doing it wrong because that's not the temperature of the plant. You want to be looking at the temperature of the plant and then look at the ambient temperature. And you want to be comparing those two when you're dialing in your room. That's a very important thing. So that's just a little side note. So you have a like a infrared thermometer then that you use to measure leaf? Yeah, you, you can get you can get on Amazon for like 10, 20 bucks. And that's a really good way to kind of get an idea of what's going on with your transpiration rates. You know, so you look at CO2 consumption, you look at leaf surface temperature, and you look at relative humidity, and you watch the growth of the plant, and you can chart these things, or you can have, you know, some some nifty environmental uh, meter in the room that can map it all out. Um, but I recommend that everyone stay away from the technology at first and that they go in their room and they take notes. So I have uh, an Excel spreadsheet with all of the metrics on it. And whenever I'm initially starting a room, I write everything down because that forces me to look. 
All right, when you're just looking at a computer screen, you're not looking at the plant. All right, when I have to go in and I have to take all the measurements by hand, I discover new things every time I do that. And if you miss that process and are just relying on technology, you do not have a relationship with the plant. And you need to have a relationship with the plant that's not only database, but sensory based. So it's really important. So that will also lead you in the correct direction of how to train the plant. So once those stems have lost their malleability, which is usually around week three, uh, and you start to gradually decrease uh, the relative humidity, which is what I usually do. I usually start at a higher humidity, around 70%, and around 72 to 75 degree leaf surface temperature. And then I gradually bring that down after the stretch happens, where I land around 55% humidity, and I will ramp up the, the temperature for a period of time when the plant is really starting to, uh, the bud sets have already happened, and, and the plant is really, you know, the flowers are really starting to come in, and that's where you're getting that bulking period. I'll, I'll increase the heat a little bit. I want a higher, you know, transpiration rate, a higher photosynthetic rate. Uh, I might get a little damage to the leaf, but I understand that's part of the cost of getting a high yield. Uh, sometimes that doesn't happen. You know, and if you, I think what the what the science, what the science says is that uh, 85 degree leaf surface temperature is peak photosynthetic rate. I try to stay away from that because you have to have a perfect environment to be able to heat that, hit that peak photosynthetic rate. And I know that I'm in an indoor environment that's not going to be perfect. So I give, I less is more. I give the plant a little bit more space. When you have cooler temperatures, I find that the stress hasn't expressed as fast. So you have more time to make an adjustment. If you're running at a, a warmer temperature, higher CO2, and you're really pushing the plant, when you make a mistake, things go south real quick, real quick. So if you can lower some of those metrics, give yourself a lot of higher, a little bit higher humidity in the beginning, you'll have a little bit more flexibility to play. Uh, and I think that's really important. Wow, that's a lot of great information. I really, I really liked a lot of what you had to say, uh, especially around humidity. I know when I first started growing, it was like you take your you take your plant and you have your metal halide for veg and your HPS for flower and you take your plants and once it reaches the size you want to flower it out you just flip the switch you pop it into the HPS room you drop your humidity 20% overnight yeah it really does stress the plant and uh, my buddy Jaya was actually the one I know you know Jaya as well yeah they got me really looking at VPD and looking at how we can make this transition much smoother and healthier for the plant because I think we introduce a lot of a, a real large vector for disease and stress yep. at that transition into flower. We're typically absolutely transplanting right around that time. Yep. Uh, we're changing all these environmental conditions. So, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about, but let's dive in a little bit on that. So how do you, you mentioned already that you start at, uh, you said, what, 60% humidity going into flower? 70 70 going into flower yep and then you lower it slowly from there yep and what are you doing with the lights throughout this as well so in the beginning the lights are again it depends on the cultivar all right i look at the surface area of the leaf to make a determination like that's my no photon net right there so if i've got something like a, a durban poison or a golden goat which is a very interesting structure it's got these skinny little leaves so there's a lot of penetration. I'm going to treat that different than I would, you know, a heavy indica or like a black domina or some kind of cush strain that's got a broader leaf. Uh, so I would look at that a little bit differently. And, and I do that. I do a lot of trials where I have like 60 cultivars in a small space just to see what happens. You know, like I'll run like one whole kind of environment on it and then see which ones respond to what, take notes on it, 
okay, when I run that, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. All right. So that's another thing I like to do. It's a good way of kind of broadly looking at a lot of cultivars and doing research on uh, kind of creating a foundation starting point for each cultivar when you go into it instead of flying blind and losing a whole room and being really bummed out. Like I'm not going to lose a whole room if I've got 60 cultivars. 60 different cultivars in there. I'm going to lose some of them and some of them are going to do really well. All right. And, and then I'll be able to identify which ones did really well in that environment. And I'll be able to identify which ones don't. So when I start all these cultivars out, I'm, I'm running on a fairly low PPFD and I usually match that with whatever it was coming in from the veg cycle. And sometimes I'll go 10 to 20% below what that is as well. All right, so I'll go a little bit lower than where it was at just to see where, just to give it a, a moment because we've got like a totally different biochemical thing going on now, right? Which takes energy. And what happens when light hits the, photons hit the plant is it, it's either going to turn into a chemical, that, that light will turn into a chemical change, you know, a form of energy. It's three different forms of energy. It'll either be chemical, fluorescence, which is reflecting light back out. All right. And that's what they call biofluorescence or heat. Now, the, what I want is I want as much chemical change to happen as possible. I don't want fluorescence and I don't want heat. Now, I'm going to get some fluorescence no matter what. And I'm going to get a, some heat no matter what. But I don't want excesses of that. I really want it to be focusing on that chemical change. You know, I want I, you know, because we're, we're not we're not doing like what happens outside. Right. You outside. It's like a gradual shift. Right. We've got like a, the times change and then you get to like 15 hours of light. And then they start to kind of move into flower and, and they're like massaging, they're like yogaing their way into flowering. Well, we're indoors, we're like, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It's like most guys are running like, you know, a lot of guys are running 24 hours of, of, of light on, in their veg and then they're going to 12. I mean, it's like a crazy hard start into mm -hmm. flower. So less is more, start easy and gradually ramp it up. Uh, when you start seeing uh, and, and when I say start easy, I'm usually around like 150 to 250 micromole, which is fairly low. And everyone out here that wants to do this kind of work, they need to get a, a, a PAR meter that reads PPFD, that reads micromole. Or if you don't have that, you shouldn't be reading Lux, you shouldn't be reading Lumens. That has nothing to do with what the plants are, are receiving on a light level. Do you want to plug a brand here? Is there one that you'd recommend that you've used that you like a lot for people to check out? You know, there's they're all different. There's, uh, there's like a, you can, I had a Lycor meter for a while that was really expensive. You know, it's almost a couple, it's like 1500 bucks. And then I used an Apogee, which was like five, six, $700. And I, there's a Hydro Farm one that I'm using now. It's a couple hundred dollars that works fine. Uh, so as long as it reads that within the acceptable par range, uh, then you're, you're going to be, you're going to be fine. So there isn't really necessarily a particular brand, I think the sensors are all kind of sourced from the same place, unless you go to Lycor. Lycor has really high quality uh, scientific sensors, but I'm not getting any difference with the Lycor meter that I am with the Hydrofarm meter. So most people, this is a new thing that they're getting into. Don't go out and buy a $1,500 PAR meter if you're just getting into this. It gradually move up to those kinds of things because they have more functionality that you're not going to use yet. So the, the cheap Hydrofarm one works fine. So that would say, you know, Get the most bang for your buck. You know, you're going to be spending a lot more on the lighting as it is, you know, when you go to LED lighting. That's the one problem with the LED lighting is it's still uh, relatively new technology and it's expensive. Although I don't really know if it costs that much to make all of it. I think it costs a lot to market it. And I think that's where we're incurring a lot of the 
the ex the added expense on LEDs because I think that the technology has gotten to the point where they can mass produce it fairly cheaply. And I'm very excited to see those prices come down. That's a little nudge nudge to all the LED manufacturers. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I mean, with the if with all the rebates that are out there, you basically be getting a light for free if they would uh, figure out a way of producing it a little bit cheaper. Uh, and they're the ones that, you know, the, all these companies are the ones making all the money right now. It's it's not so much all the cultivators. I mean, there's a whole, it is really hard. This is a hard job, man. Like, I know you know this, but, you know, you got a bad run and it sets you back, you know, and, and the people that are selling the picks and shovels, right, you know, the bullets and band-aids, those are the ones that are winning. So we, you know, we just need to push on them to, to continue to help us with success. And there's some companies out there that have been doing a great job with that. And then there are other companies that are, really capitalizing off the bubble and I don't really like them very much and I just want to say that but you know nothing wrong with the capitalism but we've got to be able to build this industry in the right way and we need as much help as we can get otherwise the people that have been fighting for this industry for the last 20 30 years are going to lose it to companies like Philip Morris and that's what I don't want to have happen and that's a little that's where I get a little religious religious like these major big companies that are going to come in they didn't fight for this we did man we fought for this like I, I got lucky that I didn't go to jail. You know, I mean, we were we've been sitting here developing my my brother's a brain cancer survivor. I mean, I was I was growing medicine for uh, people that couldn't afford the pharmaceuticals or the pharmaceuticals were killing them even more. And we knew that this was something that should be available to everybody. And we fought for it. And we should be the ones that should be able to be here at that table. And that's just a little side note on it. So if we don't all work together guess what's going to happen? It's going to turn into everything else that's happened with this country. And there's going to be big business that's going to come into the chaos and swoop it up. And then we're going to have a totally different industry. Uh, the industry is going to change, but let's make sure that we're there uh, being intelligent about how we're going to get to the table. Side note. So uh, I totally went on a tangent. No, but. that's a good rant. I hear you. In fact, I want to have uh, a friend of mine, Shango Los, who has a podcast called Shaping Fire on at some point to talk exactly about that because I think we're going to lose a lot of our genetic diversity when big business moves in because uh, oh my God. it's going to be, that's we're not going to be able to grow it and yeah, it's going to be crazy. Oh. Can I talk? Can I talk to you a little bit about that real quick, and we'll get back. Yes, but before we do, yeah. I don't want to forget this question. So, yeah, I want to reach out for growers that you know maybe they have four plants and they can't afford a light meter. What would you recommend for them to do in terms of that transition with lighting? And I would say let's talk about you know single-ended HPS as well because that's still around for a lot of people and that's what they can afford. I mean, LED is a great is a great pipe dream for a lot of people, but uh, what what's some useful information or just general rules that people could go about if they're not able to do this level of testing? Oh, and the only, so we've got like a, a, a guy growing for himself on a closet level. Well, a lot of times, I mean, I can't take all of them, but I help a lot of those guys out through Instagram. So I get a lot of questions all day long. And, and one the first thing that you can do is uh, crowdsource your troubleshooting. All right. That, that's one thing that's very good. Uh, and I would say that Instagram is a, has turned into the new forum for growing, but you can actually f freely share pictures and data with each other and have a conversation about it. I would say that the first number one rule is less is more. If you don't ha like we have this tendency to be like, oh, my God, it can go to 100. Let's put it to 100. Well, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Like go less is more with your fertilizer. Less is more. Uh, with your light intensity because it's way easier to correct a deficiency than it is to correct a toxicity. I mean, you know this. Once it's toxic, it's burned, all right? It's not coming back. It's a dead leaf. 
So if it's deficient, you can make those adjustments. You can bring that back into the soil and you can increase the light levels. So with a high, with a high pressure sodium bulb, with a single and a high pressure sodium bulb, most of the ballasts that power them really only have three or four dimming settings. Uh, and that would be like 50%, 75%, 100%, and then like some 110%, which is like some weird spinal tap reference, I guess. But <laughs> it goes to 11. <laughs> so I don't know how that works. But I would say that you really want to gradually bring the light up. And you can do that by raising and lowering the hood. And if you can't afford a PAR meter, you can absolutely afford an IR temperature gauge. And when you're growing with high-pressure sodium, I think that's more important for a lot of reasons because you've got all that heat. So you want to make sure that your leaf surface temperature is not exceeding 78 degrees if you're just starting out. If you can keep it at 72, 75, great. If you're going above 75 degrees, you better be injecting CO2 because the plant's going to have trouble. There's cheap ways of doing that without needing a CO2 regulator. You can do that with some, there's like those bag of, what is it? Those bag of spores that create CO2, forget what they're called. And then uh, if you're doing, oh goodness, if you're doing a living soil bed in your tent, then that, and you're adding worms and you're adding fresh, I mean, then you're going to be creating your own CO2 naturally. You're just going to want to exhaust that out during the nighttime. Because I've had living soil beds get up to like 3,000, 4,000 parts per million in the nighttime of CO2 just from the, the natural biological process that's going on in there. So that's one recommendation of increasing the CO2 so you can match a higher light level. But, you know, the general rule of thumb is less is more. And gradually bring it down, gradually bring the light down, gradually bring up the intensity. The time, the week, if you're running a 65-day strain, you know, usually you want to be ramping up that light and be at peak light around weeks four, five, six, you know, and then if you want to get some anthocyanin production where the hues of the flower change, you can dim the light a little bit and lower the temperature for the final weeks. If you're flushing, you know, the most organic guys aren't flushing anymore, but those, those final two weeks, if you, you know, lower that temperature, that's a little tr old school trick that a lot of people know. You can get some purples and reds and some really interesting colors to come out. Uh, but I haven't seen that as much with real high light intensity and in cold. I usually, it's you're almost like you're simulating a, a season in two months or nine weeks. That's perfect. That gives, you know, a little bit of actionable information without having to go out and buy a bunch of equipment. So that's kind of what I was looking for. Now, I will politely disagree with you on one thing you said. Go ahead. Which is uh, crowdsourcing your problems. I think I want to caution people. Yeah. I, I'm in a few forums. People will put up a photo of a bug and you'll get 10 different answers for what that bug is. It can't possibly be all those things. So oh. be selective with who you turn to for your information is what I want to point out. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. I, you know, I, uh, I didn't think about that Yeah, Cause I don't really go on the forums so much because there's some bad, there's a lot of bad information on there. Exactly. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> okay. So if you're getting your information from somewhere, you know, don't get it out of the basement you know, is my recommendation. Read, there's a lot of plant scientists on social media now, and a lot of them want to enter into the cannabis space. And I mean, I've capitalized off of that 100%, where there's been, you know, plant scientists, and some of them won't work with cannabis people, but some of them do because they would like an ent entry point. And, you know, so if there's people that actually know what they're talking about, then that's something to to look at. Now, a lot of times I, there's a bug or something that I don't know what it is. I don't know everything. I, I know a fraction of something. I, I'll say that much. But the, you know, a lot of times I'll post an image up and I'll be like, hey, I think this is that. What do you guys think? All right. And then I'll get a list of things. 
and then I'll do my research on it because at least it gave me a starting point. Great. You know, so that, that would be instead of blindly going out there, throw it up, see what people say and the people that answer correctly. Well, those are the people you want to direct message. (laughs) What I see a lot of is why does my plant look like this on the leaf? And then the next thing you know, you see it's calcium, it's magnesium, it's potassium, it's phosphorus. Oh. And and it could also be lighting. It could be humidity. It could be the way you're watering, you know. There's so many variables. And so yeah, I, I just, I see this all the time and it just makes me really nervous for people because then they're going out and they're applying CalMag and then they're applying worm castings and then they're applying, you know, all these different products. And now you don't know what's going on with the plant at this point. So less is more. I think that we just really need to emphasize that for people and just be careful with your with who you're getting recommendations for. And actually, I just want to mention this forum that Tim Wilson and I started a few years back. There's no advertising on it. It's just, uh, for the most part, science-based horticulture. It's called uh, logicalgardener.org. And Nelson, I'd love to have you check it out too. There's a lot of great stuff on I'm there. On it. Oh, you are? No, no, I'm gonna get on it right now. I just wrote it down, and I'm, I'm, I will, I will re-enter the forum space because of you. Okay, Thank you, Ted. It's not, it's not super popular. There's only a few hundred people on there, but uh, all the information on there is really great. And Tim Wilson is a wealth of knowledge. I'm just honored to consider him a friend and someone that has taught me so much. And like you, he really challenges conventional belief. Just because someone said, I don't know. Compo- foam on compost tea is good. He's going to go out there and look at it under a microscope and come back and say, hey, maybe maybe it doesn't make a difference if there's foam or not. Maybe that's related to saponin content. It's not related to microbial life in the tea. Or maybe humic acids aren't good in compost tea. So he helps me in challenging things that I've heard from other experts and actually gets me to test them out and find out for myself, is this even accurate? You know. So. Oh, I love that. I love that. It's right up my alley. Yeah. So. Very cool. I know I pulled you off what you wanted to talk about there with the other stuff. We can go back if you'd like, or did we already get, did we already get too sidetracked? <laughs> You're going to have to remind. I, no, we got too sidetracked. I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about light levels and how, how the hobbyist can, can, can achieve and then where to source the information. And I don't know where we were before that. So I apologize. I think I was on a rant. But. <laughs> That was the first part of my interview with Nelson Lindsley of Poetry of Plants. Now that you know a bit more about Nelson and his philosophies, in the next episode we dive right into the practical aspects of how he was able to get monster yields using LEDs and a hybrid method of organics and ionic nutrients sourced from the ag industry. You are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. Don't forget that there's more information and articles available on our website and blog at www.kissorganics.com. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please take a moment to leave me a review on iTunes and send me your feedback and suggestions through our website contact page. Thanks.